all you beautiful people, and welcome to the Glorious in the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles. I hope this finds you well, as always. I am actually settling back at home after being on the road with my good friend, Jenny Allen, on the Freedom Project tour. I'm still recovering a little bit from a cold that hit me while we were on the tour. It's never fun to have a cold, but being on tour and having a cold is like a whole other level. So I'm so thankful to be feeling better and getting to be sleeping in my bed for a little bit. We were so privileged to get to go on this tour together and get to partner with IJM, which is International Justice Mission, and the Noonday Collection. We were all exclusively out on the West Coast this run, which was just wonderful. We got to meet countless like-hearted women who are living set free and are pursuing what it looks like to set others free in the kingdom of God. We cried tears. We got on our knees a lot. We hugged necks. We ate lots and lots of wonderful food. It was just such a rich time. My husband, Nathan, and our road manager, Jackson, were the only two men braving a bus full of nine women, but it just couldn't have been a sweeter crew. We had the best time. We spent many nights on the bus in our PJs, solving the world's problems over dark chocolate and kettle corn. There's nothing like being around these fierce women of God who are just out there doing what God has called them to do, but doing it from such a place of utter reliance on Jesus. I think that's what's so moving to me. It's so sweet to see such a dependency that they willingly admit that they have on the Lord and how He has provided this platform for them. And so He will continue to be glorified through it. And it's just beautiful how they do that through their lives. So now we retreat back to our homes and we're getting to huddle up close with our families because that's the rhythm that works. We go out and then we draw close back in. So that's where I'm at now. Maybe you're headed to work or headed towards the carpool line today. Maybe the day ahead of you looks or feels maybe impossible at this point, but remember that wherever you are, that can become your sanctuary of remembering where you are sent from. You're God's beloved. And yes, we've got to go out into the world and get things done, but we always have a place to retreat. And you have a place of rest that's always available to you in Jesus. And you can even do this day from that place of rest. These heart postures are all about that, kind of these heart habits, so that right in the middle of the mundane to-do list, we can practice what it looks like to really walk with the Lord, conversing throughout the day with this God who loves us and sees us and knows us even more than we know ourselves. Living from these heart postures have been in different seasons of my life absolutely vital and just the act of being intentional. In fact, because life gets busy and full and there's so much noise and so many people speaking in, it becomes kind of a fight. My husband, Nathan, reminds me all the time that we have to fight for the good stuff. Nothing good is easy and we even have to fight to rest or even strive to rest like Hebrews 4.11 says. It's a fight that though it has proved to be very difficult, it is very much worth the fight in the end as I can look back and see each time that my truest self emerged freer and fuller than ever in being intentional to posture my heart before God. If God looks at the heart, think about how important it is 
to posture it in the right way before Him, that we'd spend time during our day being aware of what's going on in there. We started out with the consecrated heart, a heart that is intentionally set apart for God. My sweet friend, Lauren Tomlin, sent me a picture today of a page from John Eldridge's book called Moving Mountains. She knew that I had done a podcast on the consecrated heart, and she wanted me to see this, and I wanted to share it with you too. I think it shows us that this can actually be a daily posture in our lives. John is talking about even when he's writing and working on the current book that I'm getting ready to read this out of, he says before he writes each day that he prays and then he puts on some worship music, he spends some time on his knees, and then he specifically consecrates his office and he says he prays something like this, I consecrate my life again today to the Holy Spirit. I consecrate my gifting and my writing. I consecrate this book, every word, every paragraph, every page, all the structure, the flow, the stories, the very spirit of it. I consecrate this office and my computer. I bring this all under the rule of Jesus and under the filling of the Holy Spirit. And I call forth the creative life rule of Jesus Christ throughout my office today, throughout my gifting, and all of my writing in Jesus' name. Don't you love how specific that is? It evokes so much more conversation and invitation with Jesus, if you think about it, just inviting Him into everything that we're going to be about in our day. This makes it so easy to see how the consecrated heart could have eyes that constantly look up, which was our next posture. It keeps that movement in us each day that promotes that healing in our lives, like we discussed, that movement is healing. We can learn these heart habits, like I said before, of looking to God to meet the God needs in us. And we also invite Him to look upon us as vulnerable as that may sound, but this ultimately leads us to be able to truly receive, which is the posture that we're gonna talk about today, the heart that receives. This particular posture comes easiest when we get in that practice of consecrating our hearts to God, our lives, our marriages, our work, even just our day and what we're gonna do with it. And what's beautiful about this is all that we stand to receive because we've postured ourselves to be ready to receive. Think about that. Think about how the movement of our hearts postured towards Him opens us up to receive everything He sees fit for us to receive. His Word says in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, that His eyes roam to and fro throughout the earth, seeking to show Himself strong to those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. He's looking for hearts postured towards Him today to show Himself strong to you today. Because you have a unique place in His heart, and because He's your Father, He's going to do this very intentionally and specifically with you. But overall today, I'd just love to talk about what is ours to receive from Him. I can remember seasons in my life where I simply wasn't awake enough spiritually to do the heart work of posturing myself to receive. Sometimes I'd just coast for a season and not really put my toe in deeper waters because I was honestly just exhausted. I especially remember this when my kids were little, which I've talked about a lot. Sometimes I would find myself just numbing out with different things. Maybe I would get my nose in a home decor magazine or a television show, but eventually God in His mercy would just call out to my heart and He would gently nudge me awake. I'm not saying it's not okay to watch TV and look at magazines. It's just that 
I actually enjoy them more and tend to even want to watch different things when my heart is awake and not numbed out. I want to decorate my house for different reasons when I'm spiritually awake, not just because I'm a closet textile junkie, but because I want to use our home for the glory of God to make it a place where people instantly feel at home. I think I told you one time that our friend Pete came over and walked in the front door and immediately declared, this is a Christmas house but it was like right in the middle of summer. There was no better compliment to me on earth that our house might seem like Christmas year round. That's like everything I'd wanna achieve basically in making my house a home. So what can we receive from God? What does a consecrated heart looking up to God stand to receive? We're gonna get more specific with this. And of course, my list is not at all exhaustive by any means, but I think it's safe to say that overall, what we stand to receive is life, abundant life to be exact. What does this kind of life look like? Jesus said in John 10.10 that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. So we know that this is what Jesus wants for us. It's why he came. I'd love to share just from my own experience what it has looked like for me to come alive to my truest self by taking hold of this life that Jesus offers. I so hope that it encourages you today right where you are. As you know, I talk a lot about living from the bullseye, living from who you are, and we've unpacked a ton about being the beloved of God, knowing you are loved daughters and sons. Part of understanding who you are is knowing what is yours to receive. I think one of the most beautiful things about really owning our sonship or daughtership, if that's a word, and the authority that comes with that is learning to receive our validation from God and God alone. This is a big one. That word alone might even evoke some emotions in you that you're not expecting. This one goes back to one of our most basic God needs. No one else has the power or the authority or the right even to validate us. It's funny, but it makes me think of that little blue check mark that Instagram gives out to people of influence that verifies them saying, this is the official one. I actually don't have that little blue check mark by my name, nor do I have any pull with Instagram to be able to call them up and say, hey, make me official. When I first started Instagram, my account was actually private. I just used it with personal friends and put pictures of my kids up until it really started to blow up as a way that artists could connect with their followers. So I changed my account name, which was something private at that time, to my full name, Christy Knuckles. And apparently that raises a flag in your history and I'm less likely now to be verified because of it. I'm using like in quotes with my fingers, verified. Apparently, according to what I've been told anyway, I should have wiped out the old private account and just started a whole new one instead of changing the name on my account if I ever have hopes of being verified. I know that's a silly illustration, but even just saying that out loud, it reminds me of the great links that I'll go to in real life to get that little check mark per se. We question like, should I have done this or that? Can I somehow change just like the old me and like do a new me? What if I change my look, my sound, my ways? Or maybe it's just that constant striving of this time I'm really gonna change. I'm really gonna do things different this time. They'll see. Yet all the while, it's the real us that God is calling forth and saying, you're already mine. 
You're already seen. You're already known. You're already loved. You're already approved. When we moved from the Atlanta area back to Franklin, Tennessee, it was a hard move for the kids. Moving is hard, period. But for kids, even though they are resilient, it's just so exposing to be the new kid. I remember getting to have some really great conversations with our kids about what it felt like to be the new family at everything. And even though the kids were all born in Nashville, Atlanta was where they had done much of life. And so it had become home to them. I remember having conversations, especially with our older two kids, about what it felt like to be unknown. It really brought to the surface that need that we all have to just want to be known. At our old church, they were just that. They were known. Mom and dad were familiar faces, familiar faces on stage even. So because of that, they were familiar faces too. There's something comforting in that. And I'm certainly not saying that that was altogether bad, But moving was both hard and incredibly rich all at the same time in that it was a real pivotal time in their growth. They got presented with the unique opportunity to start asking themselves, who am I apart from mom and dad? Who am I apart from mom and dad being on the stage? Who am I just as God's kid? And is that really enough for me? And then what would it look like for me to just be me in this new place? and not be known for anything but what you see right here. This is me. This is how I smile. This is how I laugh. This is what keeps me up at night and makes my heart beat a little faster. These are my hopes. These are my fears. This is me. That need in us that longs to belong and be known was placed there with purpose. Even though there's a longing there, love has always been at the heart of that longing that we'd remember that His life is ours to receive. I remember my dad telling me one time that the enemy loves to get the people of God in particular operating in a place of striving and even exhaustion to get our basic needs met in illegitimate ways. When I think of that word illegitimate, I think of the phrase illegitimate children. And suddenly it makes perfect sense. There's nothing the enemy loves more than to get us operating like orphans, like we don't belong, like we're not the beloved. Or he just gets us looking up to the wrong thing or person constantly. Now, there's nothing wrong with looking up to people we admire, of course, but I'm talking about looking to someone for what only God can offer you and fulfill in you. I know I've shared this with you before, but have you ever noticed that God will sometimes withhold the very validation you seek when you're seeking it from someone other than Himself? There have been leaders in my life all throughout the years, bless their hearts, that I've looked to for validation. It's embarrassing for me to say it out loud, but there have been whole seasons of my life that I cared way too much about these leaders and what they thought of me to the point of desiring their approval and validation so much that I began to feel hurt by them and even crushed when they wouldn't show that to me. It almost became the opposite where I felt them almost shunning me, pulling away from me and ignoring me even. I remember it hurt my feelings so much that I found myself on my knees about it one day, crying real tears. And the Lord so very kindly revealed to me in that moment that He was the one that was not allowing them to show that kind of validation to me. He was protecting me from it. 
the strong sense that I got in that moment as the Holy Spirit just began to flood my mind and my heart was, I made you Christy, and I'm the one that put those gifts in you that you're seeking approval for. Don't you know that if I let them praise you and give you what you want from them, you'd take that as good enough for you. But I'm protecting you from that because my approval is what's best for you. Don't you know that I'm the only one who can put my thumbprint on you and say, you're mine. I remember I pictured him almost like stamping me with approval with his thumbprint with like ink on it, sort of branding me as just belonging to him. I had no idea that there was a translation of the Bible at that time called The Message. And maybe, I don't know, it hadn't been written yet. But listen to Psalm 37, 5 through 6, which is what I call my life passage of Scripture. In the message version, it says, Open up before God. Keep nothing back. He'll do whatever needs to be done. He'll validate your life in the clear light of day and stamp you with approval at high noon. I'm so grateful that God got a hold of my heart to show me that His affirmation and validation were not only available to me, but it was going to be an act of holiness and obedience for me to look to Him for it and learn to receive it from Him. I'm so grateful, though it was not fun, of course, and very exposing, that He protected me from learning to receive it elsewhere so that I could become aware of how much I craved what only He could give. One pretty miraculous thing that starts to shift is that somehow when we begin to receive our validation from God, I believe it somehow releases the people that we have been looking to for validation. Somehow in the spirit realm, I don't know how it all happens, but something shifts and lifts and you begin to operate in this order that God created you to operate in. You're looking to Him for what you need and you're no longer looking to these people around you that you've been craving this affirmation and approval from. And I believe somehow they sense it. I believe that one of the most attractive things in the world is someone who is really living from looking to God and receiving His approval. The people around you, maybe even your own husband and your children, They see the shift. I really do think they do. They feel it. I'll never forget watching this shift happen. And the beautiful thing was, those people that I was looking to for affirmation, lo and behold, they began to affirm me pretty openly. But what was so shocking to me is that I truly no longer needed it. Did I appreciate it? Of course. But it no longer fulfilled anything in me, and I became very aware of that. I bet you know exactly what I'm talking about. I bet you've experienced this before. It's evidence that there's a way that God wants us to walk in and that His way actually works. It's so interesting how we crave validation more often than not around what we do and how our gifting unfolds, either in the workplace or in ministry or the church. However, I think it still gets closely tied to our identity somehow, just like we confuse who we are with what we do. This is just my own opinion and my experience, but there can be quite a bit of wounding that develops around this area of validation, and it can start to point back to who we are if we're not careful. What I've found is that even though those people who I'd looked to for validation were not pointing their finger at me and saying, Christy, we don't like who you are, 
It felt that way at times. And here's why I think it begins to feel that way. I believe it's because I wasn't operating fully and receiving my validation from God. I wasn't fully stepping into my position as a loved daughter. I wasn't using my voice in the way that God wanted me to use my voice. And I don't mean my singing voice. And we're going to kind of open that up more here in a minute. But there began to be this wounding around what I felt like I had to offer and ultimately who I am. I'll take it a step farther and say that this wounding even continued after I felt like I was in a healthy process of receiving God's validation. So there's the fact that sometimes people can just be cruel, even in the church, sadly, because all in all, the enemy loves to just keep stirring the pot. So I learned that I had to own my part, any part that I had in it, as in not receiving my validation and affirmation from my father, And I began to see that in doing that, I could break the cycle early on before it got to this place of a full-on festering wound. Receiving gets us operating back in that bullseye zone where we know where we belong and to whom we belong. And again, it's that process of freeing the people around us from fulfilling us in any way. And I will say this, it's so important if there has been wounding in your heart in this area to do the heart work necessary to get free of that and to heal up from that. I don't want to skim over it because dealing with those wounds have been huge for me. In fact, today in the journal prompts, if you're a patron of this podcast through Patreon, we're going to talk about some practical steps in beginning a journey of freedom if there's been wounding in this area. I'm certainly not a counselor, but God has repaired some places in me that I'd love to share about that will hopefully really be helpful to you in this. You all know that I love the church. It kind of pains me even to talk about that, but I will say that the church also is just a really comfy place for me to kind of be able to get lost and hide from my truest self for whole seasons of my life. Again, I grew up in the church. I love the church, but I never thought it would be a place where I could hide the way I did. I never thought about it at the time how God wanted to really raise my voice up to use it in a way and to share from my own story and to have any sort of weight to my life that might help others and that might point others to Jesus. You might remember me telling you that my friend Jenny Allen, before I knew her at all, got my phone number from a friend and called me out of nowhere. I bet this was about six and a half years ago right before she started If Gathering. And I stood on my porch with tears rolling down my face as she asked me some very prodding questions that I have described as like a defibrillator on my heart that day, waking me up to how God wanted me to use my voice in a new way, to come out of that hiding. I truly don't know if I'd be sitting here right now doing this podcast if God hadn't used Jenny the way he did to call me out of sleeping and being tucked away. I wasn't doing anything bad, and I believe that God was actually still using me, but I hadn't fully owned my voice yet. Not that I've fully owned it now, but I have chosen to step into it and believe it's also a part of what God has called me to do, to own it and to use it. I marveled a few times as we all sat in our PJs on the bus on this tour with Jenny at how far I've come since that day she called me. And then the beauty of us getting to be on the tour that was all about being set free and living free so that we can help set others free, that truly happened to me and God used Jenny 
to help jumpstart my heart in getting there. As I said earlier, God began to show me that He wanted me to use my voice in a different way. Yes, I'm a singer and a worship leader, and I do believe that's part of the way that God has called me to use my voice. But I've also learned that all of us have a voice that we can use for the glory of God. I believe this is closely tied to our testimony and our story. But what I think we can really begin to receive from God in it all is this mantle of authority that God puts on our lives when we've walked through things that He prepared for us to walk in. When we are obedient to God in those things, even through being tested by fire at times, I believe that we begin to be able to speak with authority. My friend Lauren that I told you about earlier who sent me that snippet of the John Eldridge book, she's been one of the biggest cheerleaders in my life around me truly receiving or finding my voice, as she would say. I can testify that there is so much power in us owning our voice. Part of the way that I measured this is how much the kingdom of darkness rose up against me in ways that I never had experienced. It was suddenly all-out war. I have never experienced this kind of opposition before, and it's been so specific. I got a really encouraging email just a few weeks ago from my friend Sarah Haggerty, who I've had as a guest on this podcast when her book, Unseen, was released. And she had specifically just been praying for me against that opposition that I'm talking about because she said she knows very much how it feels. It's a kind of opposition that kind of sends this message that says, stop using your voice like that or else. I'm not going to say that the opposition hasn't bothered me. It's actually been one of the hardest things I've ever walked through, but it's also taught me that using our own voices and owning our story and pointing people to Jesus with them is what we're called to do. Revelation 12 says that the enemy was triumphed by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That word testimony there means evidence or witness. It can even mean reputation. When we are truly living from this life Jesus offers us, there's evidence of that. We begin to have a reputation for that. There's a weight to our lives, and there begins to be an authority there. But here's the thing about authority. Nothing complements authority more than humility. Humble authority is one of the most beautiful things in the world to watch. If you've ever gotten to sit under someone who leads in this way, it's life-changing. Humble authority doesn't command a room. It disarms it somehow. A person with humble authority knows where they would be without Jesus, and they aren't afraid to be transparent about the story God is writing in them, even sharing places where they've messed up and have experienced brokenness even. A little transparency used appropriately can go a really long way. In fact, if your heart is to mentor or teach or disciple, this is vital. Using your voice with humble authority is so crucial in raising people up. You're able to speak from your own story, and there's so much power in it, and it causes other people to rise up and start speaking from their own story as well. A consecrated heart that continues to look up. Another huge thing that we are able to receive is the yoke of Jesus. Not Y-O-L-K, of course, but His Y-O-K-E. This is a life-altering gift from Jesus because it's His way of doing life, and it comes from His finished work. It's the gospel in full force that we might start to live in His yoke. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love the message version of this passage as well. 28 through 30 says, Are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's what we stand to receive. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus was so straight up about the yoke of slavery that the Pharisees promoted and placed on people. Scholars say that the Pharisees would literally add hundreds of stipulations and add-ons to the law, like nitpicking into every single thing about the Sabbath, every single thing about the law. And of course, it all pointed back to the law. God did put the law in place, but it existed to give the people of God guardrails, and it was ultimately for our protection. Jesus was very specific, too, on how we are to live. At the onset of His ministry, He was very thorough in how He laid out what the kingdom of God is and what it's supposed to look like. But the difference is, is that everything was always pointing towards and now back to the cross and the empty tomb. That's why it's so powerful to begin to live and receive His yoke because we're identifying that He's already done the work for us and now we get to abide in that work and really work from Him and alongside Him in kingdom things. This is what it's meant for us to identify with Him in His death, actually, to take our place with Him in His death, dying to the flesh and coming awake, fully alive in His resurrection life to a new way of living. Receiving His yoke is saying, it is finished every single day. One of my favorite books is by Andrew Murray. It's called Abiding in Christ. Listen how Andrew describes us identifying with Christ and His death. This is all based around Romans 6, if you want to do some further hunting around this. But Andrew says, Christ came and took my place. I must put myself in His place and abide there. And there is but one place that is both His and mine. That place is the cross. His place because of His choice. My place because of the curse of sin. He came there to seek me. There alone can I find Him. When He found me there, it was the place of cursing. This He experienced, for cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Galatians 3.13. But He made it a place of blessing. This I experienced because Christ delivered us from the curse, being made a curse for us. When Christ comes in my place— He remains what He was, the beloved of the Father. But in fellowship with me, He shares my curse and dies my death. When I stand in His place, which is still always mine, I am still what I was by nature, the cursed one who deserves to die. But since I am united to Him, I share His blessing and receive His life. Isn't that beautiful? He offers us so much through his life. Again, my list is not exhaustive, but I want to end on his joy. We get to receive his joy. This joy isn't a joy that the world gives. It surpasses anything that the world could ever offer. 
As you all know, Nathan and I were a part of the passion movement for 20 years. And one of the great things about getting to be a part of that was getting to sit under some pretty great teaching, incredible teaching through the years. One of those teachers has been John Piper. And I feel like I'm in kindergarten taking notes in like a college course when I'm listening to John teach most of the time, but I always glean something amazing from it. One of my favorite messages that he preached one year at conference was, what is at the bottom of your joy? It seemed upside down at first to hear him ask, is Jesus at the bottom of your joy? It felt like we were saying, Jesus, you're at the bottom of the pile. (laughs) But hearing Piper unpack it was so powerful and so life-changing. Psalm 87, 7 says, As they make music, they will sing, All my fountains are in you. Some translations say, My whole source of joy is in you. So it's this beautiful picture of Jesus being at the very source of this fountain that's springing up. What a challenge to reorient where our joy comes from, where we receive our joy, or to even be aware of what kind of fountain is coming from what is at the bottom of our joy, whatever it is. I think it's safe to say that it's not sustainable if it's not Jesus. This might take some inventory of our lives and our hearts on our part to ensure that Jesus is at the bottom of our joy. When this happens, it surpasses our circumstances. This joy isn't dependent upon the outcome. This joy is otherly. It doesn't operate like the world operates. I guess since I'm a worship leader, I love studying about the Levites because they were our first worship leaders. There's a passage in Nehemiah 8 where we see the common practice of the book of the law being read over the people. This was something that happened quite regularly in the Old Testament. And Levites would often be the ones to instruct the people and help them to understand what was even being spoken over them. In this passage, it says that the people actually began weeping while the law was being read over them. I can only imagine that the law felt extremely heavy. We view the law now completely through the filter of Jesus and grace, but I imagine it felt crushing back then to hear it read aloud. I'd probably weep too. It says that Nehemiah said to the people after the law had been read, "'Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength.'" How interesting is that? Nehemiah comes in and basically says, go enjoy some food. He actually even goes as far as saying fat food. He's like, go eat fat things and sweet drinks. (laughs) That word sweet there is actually the same word in Song of Songs as the same kind of sweet as a lover's kiss. How sweet of the Lord to say, go enjoy these things for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This covenant that's ours by promise has always been about relationship with our Father. It's always been about joy. We might make it about rules sometimes and weep when we feel fenced in, but He's saying, you're missing the whole point. He's saying, this is a holy day and make it enjoyable. The joy that rises up in you is from God. The joy that pours out, it will be your strength. Thank you so much for listening today. 
I'd love to leave you with a song from Be Held, Lullabies for the Beloved. It's a song that a very dear friend of mine, Julie Clark, sent me about seven years ago. She sent it to me, and as God often does, this song came into full completion at the end of those seven years. The timing of it was impeccable, as always, as we'd both find ourselves trusting God through something that we couldn't control, that we couldn't change. And the only thing that truly worked, if you will, was just to receive somehow, receive what God had to offer in the moment, receive what God has to offer today with consecrated hearts looking up each in our own individual way we postured ourselves to receive all that comes with the life that only God can give a gift that no one else can give and so much began to spring up from that place so it makes this song really really precious to me there truly is no other fount where we could receive more than from the fount of Jesus and the life that He offers. Peace you leave me, peace you give me, a gift no one can give. The kind that fills your heart and makes you sing. And from the first, you have loved me and I am in your key. So home to your safe harbor, take me. Won't you come and lay my weary heart down, down, where your peace flows wide at that river's mouth Won't you come and lay my weary heart down, down where your peace flows in and your joy pours out You to hide and here I am again your quiet whisper leads me That's when the joy pours out 
That's when the joy pours out. That's when the joy pours out. When the peace flows in, then the joy pours out. Yeah, that's when the joy pours out. That's when the joy pours out. That's when the joy pours out. When the peace flows in, then the joy pours out. That's when the joy pours out. That's when the joy pours out. That's when the joy pours out. When the peace flows in, then the joy pours out. That's when the joy pours out. That's when the joy pours out. That's when the joy pours out. When the peace flows in. Joy pours out when you come and lay my weary heart down, down where your peace flows wide out that river's mouth. Yes, you come and lay my weary heart down, down where your peace. Flows in, and your joy pours out. Where your peace flows in, and your joy pours out. Jesus, your peace flows in, and your joy. Where your joy pours out.